Welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that looks back at the pop culture we loved in the 80s and 90s to see if it still has the brains, heart, and nerve we once thought it did, or if it turns out it's just been one cranky old white man ranting from behind a curtain this whole time. Cranky men and women, Chris. I mean, 80s and 90s was mostly men. (laughs) I'm Chris, the podcast host, most likely to get up at 12 and start to work at 1, take an hour for lunch, and then at 2, he's done. Jolly good fun. (laughs) I'm Seth. The host most likely to thrash him from top to bottomus. <laughs> and I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to be not only merely dead, but really most sincerely dead. <laughs> Becky and Seth and Chris, oh my! Hush, we'll get to you later. <laughs> when it comes to pop culture, we have nostalgia for. There is no place like the 80s and 90s, because that is when we were young. But in this episode, we're off to see The Wizard. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, a movie that was not released anywhere near the 80s or 90s like most of our topics, but in 1939 when our grandparents were young. We have gone back to older pop culture a couple of times, talking about early Disney films and classic sitcoms like Bewitched and I Love Lucy that were big parts of our childhood despite being made long before we were born. And I think we can safely assume that The Wizard of Oz also factored into all of our childhoods, as well as pretty much everyone else's across several generations. So in this episode, I would say we have outdone ourselves because although we've covered many (laughs) extremely popular, beloved, and well-known pieces of entertainment, this might be the pinnacle. (laughs) There's no real definitive way to measure this, but many assume that The Wizard of Oz is the most referenced movie of all time, the most quoted movie of all time, the best-known movie of all time, and the most popular movie of all time. I would not argue otherwise, personally. You can pretty much walk up to anyone, and they will, no matter what age they are, I think, I mean, they might wonder why you're walking up to them and just referencing (laughs) The Wizard of Oz, but they would know what you're talking about. So, yeah, it's like the very fabric of our lives. So, we'll get into that. I thought that was cotton, but no, it is The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) It's true. This is it. We've peaked. Just in time (laughs) for our 100th episode, which you are listening to right now. Woo! 100! Our centennial episode, ladies and gents. Although we have not been doing this for 100 years. (laughs) It only feels like it. 100 episodes means we've covered more than 100 pieces of pop culture. We drank at least 1,000 bottles of wine. (laughs) That checks out. That checks out. We fought behind the scenes at least 100 times. (laughs) And I suggested we cover Allie McBeal 100 times. (laughs) And we never will. (laughs) And Becky and Seth said no 100 times. I think Seth has asked to cover Smashing Pumpkins about a hundred times, That's too. True. We keep shooting it It's adding out. up there. Yeah, it's getting we, up there. We all have our it little is. episodes that we want to do and that we keep shooting down. <laughs> For the record, I want to do Rent, and they don't want to do it. 
<laughs> nope. Again, it's a delicate balance <laughs> of what we do and what we don't do. <laughs> so for our 100th episode, it seemed fitting that we do something big and something special, something groundbreaking that is known and loved across the world, across generations, which is why I suggested Ally McBeal. <laughs> Or just doing Buffy again, but instead we settled on The Wizard of Oz, which is also fine. It seemed appropriate that our first episode and our 100th episode would both be very Twister-centric. <laughs> what was our first episode again? Twister. <laughs> That's right. Not the game. Oh, we should have played the game. <laughs> There's still time. We just yeah. started. <laughs> the night is young. <laughs> episode 101 is Twister the game. <laughs> I feel like Twister could translate into an audio format. <laughs> And we are tying this back to our formative years by discussing 1985's Return to Oz in the second part of this conversation. So we'll chat a little bit about our overall thoughts on doing 100 episodes together, as well as our usual shenanigans where we pit the pop culture we've watched against each other because, I don't know, we do that. Because Chris subjects us to that, let's be clear here. It's true, I force (laughs) it, and then I like it, it's fun. But first, we'll take a look at this trifling little kitty flick from 1939 and see how it holds up to our sophisticated modern-day sensibilities. Is The Wizard of Oz still as great and powerful as its reputation would have you believe? Or is it just a humbug? Everyone click your heels together three times and repeat after me. There's no podcast like when we were young. 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 Good job, guys. <laughs> Back in the DeLorean, a Saturday morning And we told me cynical or radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Did we think it suddenly sucked? Now we're jaded and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a fashion or will it be fun? A decade later will it still hold up? This is when we were young When we were young Buffy, Batman, (laughs) I Love Lucy, Jurassic Park, Scream. Over the past 99 episodes, Becky and Seth have tirelessly, meticulously hunted down and collected the widely dispersed hidden fragments of my soul. (laughs) And today, by the end of our 100th episode, Becky and Seth will come into possession of the final Horcrux. (laughs) And will succeed in their quest to, at last, destroy me once and for all. (laughs) Is that what a horror crux is? Did I get that right? Oh, I don't. I don't know Harry Potter. Is that Harry Potter? <laughs> We're too old for that. I don't know. I don't. Does it even result in destruction? I can't even remember. I thought of going with Infinity Stones, but I'm kind of like have Marvel fatigue, so. It's your rosebud. <laughs> well. <laughs> We're going to move fast. Continuing the list of things that are Chris's rosebud. (laughs) Listeners may not know it, but I believe Becky and Seth are aware that I have a special affinity for The Wizard of Oz, which I have to spoil up front because it's going to become pretty obvious. Even more than Buffy and Jurassic Park, The Wizard of Oz is very central to my childhood. The way some people go through puberty, I went through The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) You went through the land of Oz. And so, for this very special occasion, I have conjured up a very special guest for us. Look up in the sky. There's a, there's a pink bubble coming down. Well, it's it's Rita, the good critic of the North. <laughs> Hello, Chris. Hello, Becky. Oh, Seth. Rita? It's me, Rita Kempley. And I have to say, I haven't been enjoying the way that you've been really beating down the Rita beat in the episodes. <laughs> 
But Rita, we we love you. It's all in good fun. Rita, Rita, you're more beautiful than I ever imagined, but you're disagreeing with things that I do, so please explain yourself. I just... I'm a 76-year-old woman, Seth. I deserve respect, and I'm always on the Rita beat. (laughs) And I disagree with you making fun of all of my alliteration and my enthusiasm. I'm just enthusiastic about movies. Rita, is this a negative review of the When We Were Young podcast? (laughs) I wouldn't call it negative, but I'd call it two stars. <laughs> Rita, I feel like we're being hoisted on your own petard here. I, I mean, is there any way that we can win ourselves back to your good graces? Seth, if you could make for me what I've always wanted, a Rita's Beat theme song. <laughs> Rita, I can only say that I'm sorry that we haven't introduced a theme song for you before now. A musical sting. Yeah, a sting. At least a sting. At least a sting. I'm a sting. 76. It might be music by Sting. It might be music by another group from the 80s. I don't know yet, but I promise I can make you music. If you don't want to do that, you could plug my science fiction novel, The Vessel. <laughs> You're a fiction writer? <laughs> Correct. Yes. My science fiction vi- movie is called, or er, book. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Vessel. Check it out at RitaKempley.com. Rita, I will check that book out. Can I ask you a question? How was that book reviewed? Oh, extremely well by me. Two stars. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rita, I believe we brought you here because The Wizard of Oz was actually unknown to many. Your first movie review. Yes, as a wee young movie reviewing lass. <laughs> <laughs> it was my first. Many, many reviews. <laughs> Rita, where did you grow up? <laughs> Where didn't I grow up, Seth? Were you an army brat, Rita? I believe it was a Kansas farm. <laughs> I don't I, I don't understand. Why why are you upset with my is it my accent? Because it's uneven. <laughs> hey, uneven wasn't the aspect of your accent that I was picking up on there, but fair enough. Um so you're from the rolling what's of Kansas? <laughs> Fields? Yes. Okay, that, uh, well, that checks partly, out. partly, sometimes. The somewhat rolling fields. Partly, I write for the Washington Post. Which is not a Kansas newspaper, <laughs> by the It's way. not. Do they have a Kansas bureau, even? Yeah, I don't know. it's remote that. work. It's remote okay. right now, via Zoom. Oh, okay. Was it remote in 1939 as well? <laughs> then it was Microsoft Teams. <laughs> no, that was by Telegram. Come on. Don't be silly, Rita. <laughs> well, Rita, we would love for you to read your original review Finally. of The Wizard of Oz. You know, we're going to review it ourselves, but I mean, I think we would appreciate an expert take since we're yes. really just, just amateurs, amateurs here. Amateurs. Okay. For you, Chris. But not for you, Seth. What about me? <laughs> for you, Becky. Becky's here, too. <laughs> I'm going to make that song for you. I'm going to win you back. And I will come back and I will grant you ruby slippers. I'll take that too. (laughs) All right. Are you ready for Rita's Rockin' Review? Is that what the title is? (laughs) Move aside, Alice. There's a new children's book heroine whizzing herself into our imaginations this summer in a brand new Wonderland on the silver screen to boot. MGM has brought L. Frank Baum's turn-of-the-century tot-friendly tome to life with razzle-dazzle to spare in this flashy, splashy new musical adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. Kidlets will concur that Lewis Carroll's huffy, puffing caterpillars and unpunctual bunnies are last <laughs> century's news after meeting Baum's funny bone-jiggling trio, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion who sprinkle snappy, saucy, delightfully modern vaudeville yucks atop Baum's decades-old classic tale. 
Doe-eyed ingenue Judy Garland plays Dorothy Gale, a frumpy farm girl who longs to go a somewhere over the rainbow and by golly finds herself there thanks to a troublesome trister that plucks her out of the sunflower state and drops her right on top of a wicked witch. Ding dong, that's got a smart. <laughs> A band of merry musical little people welcomes Dot to Munchkinland just in time for the slain sorcerer's brassed-off sis to appear in a cloudburst of fire and fury, swearing her revenge on Dorothy and Toto, too. That's her dog. From there are Kansas whippersnappers off to see the wizard, hoping to enlist his help getting her back to dear old Auntie M and that dusty, drab farm. She's soon joined by three comedic sidekicks who also seek a little something from the whiz. (laughs) It's all presented on the big screen in oh-so-glorious Give Me Some More of This Technicolor, which brings (laughs) ruby red slippers, yellow brick roads, and emerald cities to eye-popping life. This critic, for one, will never get over the rainbow of vivid hues used to conjure up this luscious fairyland. This aptly named fairyland is also sure to elicit plenty of oohs and, yes, ahs <laughs> from youngins and their chaperones alike with state-of-the-art special effects that send monkeys a-flying and that wicked witch whirling through the heavens. Of course, it'd all be for naught without a soundtrack that sings but never fear. While Dot's clicking her heels, you'll be tapping your toes to hot new tunes like If I Only Had a Brain, sure to be heard all over the airwaves this summer. Surrender one and all to the film with all the brains, heart, and nerve a movie lover could ask for. Am I dreaming or is Wizard of Oz poised to be 1930? 39's hottest ticket. Well, is that I, a two-star review, Rita? <laughs> I don't appreciate the laughter. <laughs> but Gone with the Wind. The, the Gone with the Wind is gone with the wind. <laughs> How many what stars did you give it? How many stars? Six and a half. It was a different scale back then. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is that a strong rating? That seems like a very strong rating. 17 cowbells. <laughs> Thank you for that review, Rita. Rita, I I don't have roses to throw at you, but just imagine it. Just like you're imagining that I made a song that introduces you. Rita beat, Rita beat, Rita beat. Do you want me to do the vocals? That's going to be part of it. You already did. Um, Rita, glorious, glorious. I feel like only Rita Kempley could have fully characterized the, the movie magic that is The Wizard of Oz. Thank you so much. Very well written. <laughs> Thank you. I wrote I it I wouldn't myself. go that far, but... <laughs> Please check out my future thriller called The Vessel. <laughs> RitaKempley.com. Wait, is it a thriller about the future or you haven't written it yet? <laughs> it's a futuristic thriller. Both. Check out more at RitaKempley.com. It's not a real domain anymore, but it's still in my Twitter handle. <laughs> You can just use GoDaddy or something like that. You can... I don't have the money for that, Seth. Rita! I've fallen on hard times. Rita! Can you open a Patreon, Rita? Go fund me. <laughs> we will? We will work up... We have to do more to help you than just make music for you, clearly. I'm being paid for this, correct? Rita, there's a pink bubble coming up from under you. It's encasing you. What's oh. happening? Oh. My years of improv have taught me to yes and that suggestion. <laughs> Checks in the mail. Bye. Here it comes. Goodbye. Stop making fun of the Rita Beach. Goodbye, Rita. I'll haunt you if you do. Guys, that was so special to have the Rita Kempley that we constantly talk about on our podcast, finally. It's funny that she was just like so dissimilar from all the other guests that we've had on the podcast before. (laughs) 
Well, now I'd like to welcome Jan to the podcast. <laughs> Hi, Jan. Hello. Jan, how did you... Wait, wait, hold on. Is that actually Jan? It's me, your good friend Jan, and no one else. <laughs> I think we should believe her, guys. I'm pretty sure that's Jan her. was running a little late. She was stuck in traffic. What Los Angeles, now? you know. You gotta get one of those pink bubbles. They're really helpful to just, like, <laughs> sail over everything. We had another guest fill in for you and just kind of vamp while you weren't here yet, and she took a pink bubble in and out. It was the quickest commute I have ever seen. That would be useful. Is it an app? Is it like Lyft? Probably. Okay. They probably give you the first pink bubble for free. The pink bubble did have a pink mustache on it, so (laughs) (laughs) that was a bit tacky, right? Well, welcome, Jan. Thank Uh, you. Friend of the pod, Jan, is here now to talk about The Wizard of Oz and Return of Oz with us. Yay! You may remember Jan from our Batman and Batman Returns episode. I'm back. (laughs) This town still needs an enema. (laughs) It's true. She's just come back to update us on the enema needing status of the city. It's been two years and and a whole pandemic and still (laughs) enemas are needed. Yep. So now that we have our official, actual guest for the podcast (laughs) with us, I would like to ask an opening question for this episode, which is, where did you escape to when you were young? And in a way, it's kind of obvious because we do a podcast where we talk about all the film and movies and such that we escaped to when we were young. But was there a specific kind of escape that you had, maybe a specific piece of pop culture or a place that you went to that was kind of your happy place when you were a kid or a teenager? When I was a kid, what I really liked was to escape into my writing and just write all these stories about anything on the big giant computer that we had when I was feeling low or like I wanted to do, you know, wanted to not be part of whatever was going on in my life. I just wanted to have some, a little bit of escapism. So my escape was always writing and, you know, TV and movies too. But I think I discussed that in the Batman podcast and my Batman fan fiction. (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) So, yeah. I can never get enough of that. (laughs) (laughs) That one day... I will open up that floppy disk, and we can have a, a, a table read. I think that would actually just destroy... The, I think if you open the floppy disk, it probably will just destroy so the Maybe file. we need to put the floppy disk in a drive and read it? I don't know. Yeah. And then we launch batgen.exe. <laughs> and the fun begins. The world will never be the same. I'm trying to think of the non-depressing answer uh, for this. Was it heroin? No, like sometimes I would literally hide in closets because I was hiding from my parents fighting or or people would come over and I didn't want to see them and I would hide in my closet. Um, that's not a happy place. I mean. Um, you didn't want this to be the answer, but it's movies and TV for sure. I kind of feel like you wanted that to be the answer. I mean, that's what <laughs> it kind of guessed. That's what it was. That's what made me happy. I guess that was more when I was very little. 
And then the internet came around and then it became chat rooms, like with my message boards that we've talked about in the Heartthrobs episode, (laughs) where I had very close friends from all around the country. Some of them famous teen heartthrobs. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Devon Sawa. (laughs) (laughs) But that was definitely a safe space. And then maybe also performing a little bit older than that when I was performing in plays in middle school and high school and like show choir, like performing, I think was also something that always made me happy. And I liked that if I was having hard times or a bad day, I could, when I was acting or performing, I didn't have to think about it. Uh, Well, I'm not sure why Becky chose to steer away from the depressing answers, because I've got nothing but depressing (laughs) answers to this question. Much of the coping mechanisms that I developed as a child were means of escape in one form or another. And I feel like for most of us, you know, a lot of our patterns of behavior that we repeat throughout our lives are developed as children. Video games definitely rank high on the list. I think as we discussed kind of in our Nintendo episode and talking about video games, like I very much used video games as a way to kind of check out from daily life and daily stress. Movies and TV definitely were, but I don't think that that was the primary thing that I got out of them. I had a very active imagination and got to use my active imagination a lot, so I didn't really necessarily need them as a way to, you know, psychologically feel comfortable or comforted. And then also another form of it was definitely just dissociating, which is something that I only kind of recognized and learned in retrospect about myself, that I had kind of learned to psychologically dissociate at a young age in response to situations that I couldn't deal with that were too stressful or that I didn't understand. You know, and like that would happen in response to getting yelled at by my dad or made fun of by bullies at school and stuff like that. Obviously, I didn't have any context for what it was at the time, but like I would literally dissociate. I would kind of check out of myself for a little while. And that's a coping mechanism that everyone has, and people develop various sensitivities, you know, and things that can set it off. So one thing I've had to, like, learn in my life is how to kind of come back from that state and kind of, like, check back in and return back into my own body. And it's a thing I still, like, deal with, because, you know, life still has a lot of stress and anxiety for me. But I'm not going to spoil what I thought of this movie now too much, but one thing that stood out to me and was very interesting to me re-watching it this time as an adult is seeing how well the story of this movie does kind of represent aspects of the psyche and like your, your inner self and your inner mind and how conflicted those can be and how scary your own imagination can be. Yeah, so I, I hope I didn't depress everyone way too much. I thought you were going to ask about my dog, Toto. <laughs> How's your dog? <laughs> Dead. <laughs> oh, no. It was my childhood dog. Wait, Wait you... seriously? Uh-huh. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were being another character. <laughs> Jan, are you crunching us again? <laughs> no. Do you have a dog named Toto? I had a Karen Terrier named Perky, but it, we got it, it looked just like Toto. And I used to wear my hair in the two braids. And so my best friend when I was growing up thought that I was Dorothy. Aww. <laughs> For a very long time. And then it was like weird when I was like, well, I'm not though. Just because, <laughs> you know, it's not a real, it's not a documentary. <laughs> so you lived a lie, is what it's you're saying. It's not a biopic about you? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was, but if so, unauthorized. <laughs> <laughs> unauthorized. <laughs> 
Would anyone like to guess what my happy place was? <laughs> I'll was give you a hint. Allie McBeal. Allie? Did it start with an Allie and end with McBeal? <laughs> yes. But, you know, that was kind of there. But there was another one that was a little more important. So I have to spoil my history with The Wizard of Oz now, because otherwise I can't really answer this question. The question that you came up with. Yes. <laughs> Weird how you boxed yourself into that corner. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's an Oz episode. I get to do whatever I want. Yeah, so it was Oz. <laughs> <laughs> the Land of Oz, which I first visited when I was seven. Actually, like, one of the places that came to mind when I was thinking about my response to the question that I posed <laughs> to everyone was the library, because obviously it offered a window into a lot of different worlds. And even more, I think, than TV and movies at that time, books were really that for me. And specifically, the Oz books that I discovered when I was, I think, about seven in the library, I was potentially re-alphabetizing the books in the children's section, because I used to do that. If if I found a book that was not in the right place, I would alphabetize it properly. <laughs> and at one point I did that and discovered a book called The Land of Oz. And I was confused because I was like, what? There's another one? Because all I knew of was The Wizard of Oz, like a lot of people. The cover looks very exciting. It had the Scarecrow and Jack Pumpkinhead, who we'll meet in the Return to Oz episode. A couple other characters bowing to a princess. So I checked it out and soon discovered that there were many other Oz books. How many? 40. Oh my god. And that 40 official Oz books, plus a lot more that like other people wrote like after like the official series. Unauthorized. Well, yeah. Is that like a quattro decalogue? What is that? (laughs) What even is that? I don't know. (laughs) That's that's a bunch of elegies. It's a fuck ton. That's (laughs) It's a fuck-tillogy. That's That's right. More than there are babysitter club books. (laughs) Oh, that's a lie and you know it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't can't let that stand. Oh no. Jan's gonna fact check. Jan's gonna fact check. (laughs) So, and they were published, like, a long time ago, before I was a child, so... You mean earlier than the Wizard of Oz movie? (laughs) (laughs) Even earlier than that. I will get into the history of all that in, in a second, but... They were, like, a little harder to find. Like, they weren't all still in print. But the library did have quite a few of them. And I would order them from different libraries. And sometimes, like, the mailman would just have this giant stack (laughs) of packages that he had to carry to our house because they wouldn't fit in the mailbox. So I would receive, like, giant Oz bombs, basically. Oz bombs! (laughs) You would have your own personal Ozfest? Yes. (laughs) I like it. I'll allow it. (laughs) Jan allowed it. And I soon discovered, you know, that there was a newsletter, like a current newsletter that was coming out with like stories and news in there. So I would write to the newsletter. <laughs> it was my first published writing and in, in like was little Oz stories that I would write for this. Oh my God. Do you have those somewhere? We're going to post them with this podcast. I almost did not even mention that because I was afraid <laughs> that Chris, someone would try and hunt them down. Why would you not want to share those? That is so wonderful. Because they are probably quite embarrassing. You whatever you're a kid. But I did win a lot of contests with them. I won so many contests that they had to stop letting me win. Wow. <laughs> what are you pissed about? I don't know how many entries there were. I mean, I, I could have been one of two entries. I don't know. Chris, that makes you the de facto ruler of Oz. <laughs> That's true. I have come to claim my throne in this I'll episode. Let you read, I'll let you read one Batman well, fiction. Jan and I will exchange. <laughs> Becky and Seth are not allowed to exchange unless we get to read Becky's sex chats with JTT. <laughs> If I had them still saved, I would have brought them (laughs) to share. They would be published in a Twilight-style novel. I do think my mom found them one. (laughs) 
Oh, Wait, what about me? Mouse? What's my what's my chip here? No, what what is you, what's your most embarrassing? <laughs> Literally everything I ever share about myself is the most embarrassing thing. My life is defined by embarrassment and shame. Well, you got to pick one and then maybe we'll let you join the club. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, with 40 books that I read all of and then many more that were like un- the unofficial ones, I spent a lot of time in Oz in my wow. imagination. So, I honestly sort of feel like I spent more time there than in my actual life. So it really was, for me, like a a very like escapist place. And for, you know, a fair amount of years, you know, and it's... What age were you when you started? Seven? Seven, I think. Until like when? I know I was still reading them around 11. And then maybe for like a year or two afterwards, it kind of tapered off. And I like discovered more like teenage things, probably around the same time that I stopped listening to the Disney soundtracks, (laughs) which we've discussed many times on this as a gateway into like real music. Like for me, it's a little cheesy but the feeling that I have around like the Oz books it just feels like Christmas morning like it's that like very excited feeling of like possibility that you feel when you're a little kid and so that was my little escapist place that's not cheesy that's beautiful and wholesome and I'm very glad that you had that. I had no idea that there were that many books me neither very few people do yeah <laughs> I could name them all for you too oh Tell me when it's over. Look at that. Look at that. (laughs) I want to go home. I am Oz, the great and powerful. Who are you? Who are you? And now for a little Oz-story. Lyman Frank Baum was born on May 15th, 1856. Lyman? Lyman. Lyman. In upstate New York. (laughs) (laughs) He was a salesman, theater manager, playwright, chicken breeder, marketer of petroleum (laughs) lubricant, general store owner, local newspaper owner, and mostly a failure in all of these things. So he was a charlatan. <laughs> a charlatan. <laughs> charlatan. Whatever. He was a charlie tan. Charlatan Heston. Guys, I'm tired. <laughs> in 1897, he published the book Mother Goose in Prose. In the inscription to his sister on the copy he gave her, he wrote, When I was young, I longed to write a great novel that would win me fame. Now that I'm getting old, my first book is written to amuse children. For aside from my evident inability to do anything great, I have learned to regard fame as a will-o'-the-wisp which, when caught, is not worth the possession. But to please a child is a sweet and lovely thing that warms one's heart and brings its own reward. Wow, that's really nice. Yeah, Yeah. honestly, like, he figured it out. He's also a very good writer. That was very well written. (laughs) From there, he went on to make a trade magazine called The Show Window about dressing store windows to attract customers. Guys gotta make money. Yeah. He next collaborated with artist W.W. Denslow on a book called Father Goose, his book. And then at the suggestion of his mother-in-law, he wrote down some of the tales he was telling his four sons at bedtime. They would become The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, published in 1900. The book was partially inspired by his visit to the World's Fair in 1893, as he saw the contrast between all the people that were living through a depression at the time and this kind of mecca of marvels at the World's Fair. So feels very Dorothy going to Emerald City. The book did okay. In 1902, it became a stage show musical that eventually went to Broadway and was a smash hit. Were the same songs in the movie in that musical? They were certainly not. In it, Dorothy was a teenager, so that's kind of similar. She traveled to Oz with a cow named Imogen. Did the cow talk? 
I'm sure that it did, because I don't okay. think that they had just, like, a silent cow on stage. <laughs> that would be kind of awkward. She had a love interest named Sir Dashimoff Daly, and there was also a waitress named Trixie Trifle. Uh, none of these are from the book, by the way. <laughs> Were they all detectives, too? <laughs> Trixie Trifle is my porn name. <laughs> porn name. Wait, are you saying that's your pouring name? When I pour. Okay, yeah. okay, that's, got it. <laughs> The stage show did make The Scarecrow and The Tin Man, in particular, a very popular comedic duo. So, in 1904, Baum wrote the sequel to The Wizard of Oz called The Marvelous Land of Oz, prominently featured The Scarecrow and The Tin Man, as well as new characters like Jack Pumpkinhead and Professor H.M. Wogglebug, (laughs) T.E. But it did not feature Dorothy Gale of Kansas. But readers demanded more Dorothy, so he brought Dorothy back in the third book. And then they demanded Toto, so he brought Toto back in the fifth Is book. Is Dorothy the final girl? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And then in the sixth book, he had Uncle Henry and Aunt Em come to Oz. And at the end of the book, he had Oz cut off all communication with the outside world so he could no longer write about Oz because he was sick of it. <laughs> Baum tried to move on to other writings, some done under pseudonyms. He created other Oz-like fairylands. He put characters who appeared in Oz books in his other books. He wrote books that didn't initially have anything to do with Oz and then had them set in Oz in the end so he could put Oz in the title. And sell an Oz book because all his readers just like wanted more and more Oz. And he referred to them as my loving tyrants in the letters he would write up front of every book. This sounds Harry Potter-ish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you read all those books, including the ones that are just like, and now we're in Oz, the end. I did. <laughs> the shoehorn of Oz. Yeah. <laughs> Baum wrote 14 full-length Oz books in total until his death on May 6, 1919. That's my birthday. It was Whoa. meant to be. He was... Are you him? <laughs> yes. Uh, reincarnated actually... because I was born in 1919, actually. I was going to oh, look great. Thank you. Honestly. <laughs> Being 102. The publisher then passed the Oz baton to another writer named Ruth Plumley Thompson. She wrote 19 more Oz books, and the tradition continued on until there were 40 in full official ones, and then dozens and dozens more written by various other authors over the years still being written still being published there's still like a very like ardent oz fan base even though it's a fairly small fan base who owns the wizard of oz bombs like a state or the publisher I, it's in the public domain now so oh, it's in the public domain yeah so, okay yeah and it, I, it gets reprinted all the time you know without i could reprint it do it So with Oz's steady popularity through the years, it was no wonder that MGM decided to make The Wizard of Oz as a movie in the late 1930s. They were inspired by the buzz around Walt Disney's Snow White. Baum had already made several silent Oz films while writing his books. I've watched one of them. It's a little rough. There was also a 1925 Wizard of Oz co-starring Oliver Hardy that was also quite a departure from the original book. But this would notably be the first time color was brought to Oz on screen in the film's famous Technicolor. Shirley Temple was the original choice for Dorothy. She was 10, so she was much more age-appropriate, but she was contracted to 20th Century Fox. So 16-year-old Judy Garland was cast. She had to have her chest flattened to portray a young farm girl. Who hasn't? I mean, she looks like a teenager in the movie. Yeah, I mean, in the book, she's like a little girl. She's like eight years old. So that's interesting. She does not seem like a little girl. <laughs> that would be weird to have somebody so short and young with three men and also like a much older woman, like trying to kill her versus at least like a teen who's a little bit older yeah yeah but there's also like flying monkeys in this movie (laughs) yeah i I, there's more suspension of disbelief than age gaps here (laughs) there are 124 little people in the cast cast as the munchkins that is a lot of people 
That's also got to be a Hollywood record. I'm sure it is. Except, it, it, like, Except for Oompa Loompas. I was going to say, there's probably some even more offensive depiction of little people yeah. where... The film had over 10 writers and four directors, basically. Really? What did... What's his fate? Victor Fleming. Why did he get the credit then? He directed the Oz sequence, like the in Oz, but then he left to go do Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Holy shit, he did Gone of the Wind? Yeah. I didn't even remember that. He had a good year. <laughs> he did both those movies? Yeah. And then, so they brought George Cukor on, who's another like wow. really famous director, yeah. who didn't actually shoot anything, but he was really influential, because originally Dorothy had a blonde wig, and there were all these like changes that he made that they actually ended up like reshooting some scenes that they'd already shot with like Dorothy in the blonde wig. They changed the witch's costume, so none of the extra directors got credit, but he was he's still considered like very influential. And then King Vidor came in to shoot the Kansas sequences. So wow, different director okay. because Fleming went off to go to Gone with the Wind, which I guess worked out pretty well for him. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just make two of the most classic movies of all time that will symbolize old cinema for history. Yeah. Simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very uh, Jurassic Park Schindler's List year for him. Mm-hmm. The fourth director was Richard Thorpe, who is the one who was replaced after the beginning for not being very good, I guess. <laughs> I can't believe so many cooks in the kitchen actually made something good. It's really crazy. You would expect it to be a disaster, but it doesn't, like, you don't watch it and feel like, oh, this, I mean, obviously the Kansas sequence is different from the Oz sequence, but, you know, like, the tone doesn't feel wildly different or anything mm-hmm. like that. It was a very hazardous set. I think a lot of these stories are kind of famous. You guys have probably heard them before, but the Tin Man was originally played by Buddy Ebsen. He filmed for 10 days and then suffered an allergic reaction to the aluminum makeup. he was wearing and was hospitalized in critical condition his voice is still in some of the songs like when they're singing as a group because they didn't re-record everything they just re-recorded with jack haley for the ones that he sang like solo i bet the who replaced him jack haley I bet he was like, oh, uh, can I have a test on this makeup before I, like... All they did was then put, like, a, another layer, like, under that paint. But I think they still use the same paint. Jesus. Uh, Margaret Hamilton's makeup was also so toxic that she couldn't eat on shoot days because it would poison her. She was a witch? Yes. She received third-degree burns when uh, the burst of fire that accompanies her exit was triggered too soon when she descended, like, through the oh yellow brick God. road. I think that's the shot in the movie, too, right? It is, yeah. So she was out of work for three months because of that. The horses were dyed with jello, which they kept trying to lick mm-hmm. off. They were literally <laughs> dyed? That I was thought it was question. just cam- in the camera. Like, they did it, they changed the color or something. Like, nope. like painted the negative or something? Yeah. That's what I thought. Because it was so bright. <laughs> you could never be jello. <laughs> was it a boss of horses? <laughs> also, that's sad, because you know what's in jello. Horses. horses. <laughs> Jan, Jan, do you think someone told the horses on set, you're licking yourselves? <laughs> Isn't there also this like rumor or something that a munchkin hangs themselves in the background of a shot? Urban there, legend. Long time. is a rumor. Yeah. It is not true, by the way. It is Isn't not it just true. like a sandbag or something? Yeah. I thought it was a bird because they had all those birds on set. A bird hanged themselves? A, no. <laughs> God, that bird was really sad about something. So, they got all these birds from... The, they're all, it's all inside, right? All the sets. And so they wanted it to yeah, feel... they filmed on location in a bus. <laughs> they wanted it to feel out, outside-y. So they got all these birds from the zoo. And in back of, like, some sheet or whatever, there's a shadow of a bird spreading its wings or something. And I that's, thought that. that's one of the things that was mistaken for. Right. A munch, munchkin suicide. Yeah. And that's literally... I learned that as a kid. It was, like, acquired 
wisdom. Yeah. I don't know. I wisdom? don't remember. Yeah. Oh, my oh. God. <laughs> See what I, I did there? Also, I heard my mind. that uh, Judy Garland just was fed pills all day. Yeah. That is that <laughs> is true. more true. <laughs> <laughs> that is fact. She was also sexually harassed a lot and, like, grabbed by a lot of the munchkins. Mm. Uh, that was also about 100 degrees because of all the lights that were required for Technicolor. So it was probably a miserable <laughs> place to work, honestly. Oh, my God. Every one of them was wearing caked-on makeup. Like oh, the lion. Had... I mean, I think he. Oh. I would think I remember hearing that he almost like passed out sometimes too, because that costume was like seventy pounds or something. Yeah, that had to be absolutely miserable for he every single person lion. on set. It was a real lion. <laughs> no, it's true. That was. It was really made out of lion. Despite all these setbacks, The Wizard of Oz did make it onto the big screen on August 25th, 1939, directed by Victor Fleming, credited, and (laughs) several others uncredited. Starred Judy Garland as Dorothy, Frank Morgan, Margaret Hamilton, Ray Bolger, Jack Haley, Burt Lahr, and Billy Burke. What's the dog's name? Terry. So it's credited Toto? as Toto. Really? Yeah. There's a rumor that Toto was paid more than most of the munchkins. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. That dog had to do a lot. It's true. I kinda, Honestly? I don't really feel like that's that's unfair. I mean, the, all they had to do is stand there, but Toto's running, There's some jumping. choreography. A little. We'll talk about Toto's performance later, but <laughs> the pay disparity is lamentable. The film was written by Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. Again, more writers were actually writing it, including Herman Mankiewicz. Mank. Also, I didn't know there was another Edgar Allen out in the world. <laughs> I was very surprised for half a second. If Edgar Allen <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Did he ghostwrite this? Did he literally write it as a ghost? The songs were written by Edgar Yip Harburg and composed by Harold Arlen. Herbert Stothert wrote the score. And the movie did okay. <laughs> it cost over $2.7 million to make and grossed a little over $3 million. Wow. It was MGM's most expensive at the time. But, like, it was a huge promotional budget, so it didn't really, like, make back all of its money. The New York Times said of the film... Not since Disney's Snow White has anything quite so fantastic succeeded half so well. A fairy book tale has been told in the fairy book style, with witches, goblins, pixies, and other wondrous things drawn in the brightest colors and set cavorting to a merry little score. It is all so well-intentioned, so genial, and so gay that any reviewer who would look down his nose at the fun-making should be spanked and sent off supperless to bed. Mm. Rita, is that you? (laughs) Oh my. The film was nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture. It won Best Original Song and Best Original Score. I think quite deservedly. There's no original song in Gone of the Wind. <laughs> trying to think of something. <laughs> it's gone like the wind. Gone like the wind. Gone like the wind. A Miller boy at production. I know what song you're singing. Yeah, She's like crazy. the wind, yeah. yeah. But Gone with the Wind. I like yes. it. That's pretty, <laughs> Thank you. That's pretty good. Thank you. Uh, only other women here who've seen Dirty Dancing. <laughs> it's true. I, I did not know what that was. The Wizard of Oz was re-released theatrically in 1949 and then 1955. Then in 1956, it was broadcast on CBS in color, but most people did not have a color TV, so it's kind of funny to think of (laughs) a bunch of people watching this in black and white. But it did become a thing in subsequent broadcasts. So in the 50s, it became a thing. Yeah, so after 1959, it was rebroadcast every year for a very long time. And that's when most people actually, like, watched the movie, and it became, like, something that was, like, known and and loved by everyone. And was that a commonplace thing for feature films to be, you know, broadcast on television like that? 
Yeah, I mean, this was obviously like fairly early into most people having a television. But yeah, I think it was a relatively new concept at the time. Broadcast, it was like sponsored, you know, and like they, I think for the first broadcast, they had Judy Garland, like introduce it and everything. So it was kind of an event. It wasn't like when we were kids, like what was on TV was just kind of a like filling time kind of thing. It was like a big thing. Was Dorothy smoking a nice pack of... uh... (laughs) I bet she was. Um, Parliament unfiltered 100s. The cigarette that doctors recommend for pregnant women. So by that time, she was at least 30, right? No, older than that, like 40? Yeah, she was was definitely a thing in movies for a long time. Right, but then... She was 47, and she died in 1969. A fact I definitely knew and did not have to just look (laughs) at. I think it picked up steam, like, as it went. Like, that first broadcast was not, like, such a big sensation that they were like, we must do this all the time. It was, like, it was good enough that they did it again a few years later, and then at that point it was, like, good enough. It's probably around the same time that, like, and I'm sorry, I don't remember when it came out, but, like, It's a Wonderful Life became, like, an annual thing. Like, there's some movies that mostly that are, like, seasonally appropriate that do they just play every year at the same time, and that's when it becomes, like, a thing. And I think The Wizard of Oz was around Christmas time was when it was it was in November, I think the early ones, but like sort of the holiday ish season. So, yeah, I think it was families are together then. Yeah, they only had one TV back then. So they had to watch whatever was on one of the three channels. So I already talked a little bit about my history with The Wizard of Oz, but what is your guys' history? First, if you have any history with the book, but then with the film. Um, I haven't read the books, except I did try to read Wicked at one point, and I couldn't really get into it. When I was a kid, we had it on VHS, and the other side was Annie. Whoa! Yeah, was this right? a Double bootleg v- VHS that, oh, yeah, off the TV? Oh, yeah, it was off the TV, right? Okay. And I there would be friends with you when you were little, because I would watch those movies with you. Well, here's the thing. Annie was extremely scary to me. <laughs> Wait, I want to know what was scary about Annie. This okay, is an Annie and, podcast now. <laughs> so, the thing that scared me really badly, and I couldn't watch it, was that there's this in the beginning, Miss Hannigan. They're singing at the orphanage or whatever, and she pops the head off a doll. Oh! And for some reason, that terrified dog. little Jan. <laughs> oh! And so somehow, like the Wizard of Oz is like tied in with that for me because it was the other side of the VHS, and it just sort of like freaked me out. But <laughs> so I didn't want. I would say I didn't watch it too much because it like I don't know. Because you'd have to get through Scary Annie to get to the Wizard of Oz? Well, you wouldn't have to. Well, I think you might have had to maybe maybe it was on the same side and you just had to fast forward. Wait, you can do different sides on a VHS? Yeah, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay, you're right. I guess not. Maybe I'm thinking like a laser disc. (laughs) (laughs) You had Annie on laser We have to stop everything here. We have to stop everything. Okay, fine. (laughs) What do you think a VHS tape is? Have you seen The Wizard of Oz, Jan? This is our question. Do you even know what movies are? <laughs> Wait, I really want to get to the bottom. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. It was on the same VHS But it was tape. like second, right? Yeah, it was like okay. two things on the same. So then okay. I would have to get so you, through one okay, to get yeah. to the other. And that freaked me out. But I did like, <laughs> I, and you know, I had that whole thing of growing up and, and my best friend really truly believing that I was Dorothy. Because of the how I wore my hair and having a little dog. Because you were friends with dumb people. <laughs> <laughs> we were in like preschool. And she was like, she has a dog that's 
that is a Karen Terrier, just like Toto. But Karen Terriers, I don't recommend. She wasn't a very nice dog. But it's okay. I had a friend who was a raptor. We talked about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would just watch it with my family. I remember being a little scared of the monkeys. Now that I see it, I don't know when I could possibly show my daughter because, like, she's scared of bad guys and she's almost four and very scared of, like, bad guys in movies. And, like, there's a movie about Elmo. And I was like, there's no bad guys in this. Don't worry. But then there was a bad guy and he stole Elmo's blanket. And she was like, when is he gonna get the blanket back? How will he sleep? So I don't think I can show her these terrifying, like, flying monkeys that come in, you know? Have you shown her Annie? <laughs> no. Will you no watch bad Annie guys. <laughs> No bad guys. No, and I, I don't... I thought about watching Annie, but I don't know. I have to get over that childhood trauma of the doll's head popping off. Pretty thought terrifying. it was a real child, I guess. I don't know why it scared me so much. Aww. I was scared of some weird things as a kid. Well, we'll have you back for episode 200 on Annie. <laughs> <laughs> What about you, Becky? I didn't really know there were books. I think I just assumed there was at least one. I didn't know there were multiple until I met you. And then I would watch this on TV and I must have watched it a lot because watching it as an adult, like I knew pretty much everything. So this was definitely something that was on a fair amount when I was little. Yeah. And then I don't really have much more connection to The Wizard of Oz besides it just being a thing I put on occasionally, except that I played Dorothy in my camp production of The Wizard of Oz. Did you have to bind your chest? (laughs) I did not bind. my chest. But it was a fat camp, so I lost weight. (laughs) My chest. It's an opposite approach, really. It was when I was 15. They put you on all the pills. Uh. (laughs) It was a real method immersion into Judy Garland's approach. Um, I remember they had a a blue Dorothy dress for me. It was probably like a Halloween costume, but they didn't have shoes in my size, so I wore somebody's red sneakers. Instead of ruby slippers, but I had a brunette wig and I sang somewhere over the rainbow. And I remember realizing that I'm like, I got the lead in the play. And I'm like, Dorothy has one song. (laughs) I was so pissed off. (laughs) She sings like a little bit of like, you know, a little bit in like, we're off to see the wizard or something. But she doesn't really have a lot more songs than that. She has the classic song, but I was a a little pissed off. I gotta say. Diva from the start. I just thought of another traumatizing childhood thing. You saying that brought this up. But when I was young, I was in like tap dance and, and, and ballet and I hated it. And the other group got to all be Dorothy. They all got the blue checkered dress Aww. and the, and we were like wearing these shitty bumblebee outfits. And I was so pissed <laughs> because I was like, I'm Dorothy. Why don't I get to wear the outfit? And then in the middle, and my mom has the tape of this in the middle of our performance, I just gave up and dropped the pail and just left. <laughs> You were a bee with a pail. Yeah, it was something. You were I don't know. A we diva had like, bee. <laughs> you were a beaver. My mom was bribing me with toys to get me to go to these dance classes, and I hated it. And yeah, it was like oh, no. I don't know. It was like I don't know why we had like like sand pails in our hands in the middle of Wisconsin. But like, there's video of me like just being like like screw this and just dropping the pail. Oh, that's leaving. amazing. <laughs> because they wouldn't let me dress like Dorothy, and I was Dorothy, according to your friend. Then I came to believe it. <laughs> Isn't that shared delusion what friendship is all about? Yeah. That's amazing. I, Jan and Becky, I love both of your stories so much. Becky, I love the idea of you as Dorothy. I Were think you, you also killed Dorothy? I, shockingly, I was never Dorothy. Um, I was in the Lollipop Guild. 
The Lollipop Guild? The Lollipop Guild. I seem to remember the only performance of Wizard of Oz I was in being a summer camp production. It's always the summer camp. It's always the summer camp one. It's Yeah, it's never the main show. It's really not the school year. Because you're just not going to get the best from everyone when everyone's part is at most like a munchkin. or And again, Becky, as you said, Dorothy's only got a song and a half or so. So yeah, it was definitely a summer camp production, but I gave my all. I don't think I had to pretend to be a little person because I was still a shorty back then. (laughs) We weren't like sitting on our knees or anything stupid and weirdly problematic like that. I was just going to suggest that. You could have sat on your knees. I I can't now because that would hurt. (laughs) I'm an old person and my parts are breaking. But yeah, this was one of those, unlike like South Pacific, where I got a good small role, but like I got to do a solo and a song, and like that felt really good. In Wizard of Oz, I didn't get shit. It was Lollipop Guild. There's no glory in that. No small parts. Yeah. Are you saying that about Munchkins, really? <laughs> Again, Becky, we're trying not to be problematic. Yeah. We've done a hundred episodes. <laughs> we've heard- Only small actors. <laughs> we've been, we've been heard from so many communities of the people that we've hurt with our words. I didn't finish, the- <laughs> I didn't finish the phrase. <laughs> only small parts, only inferior tiny people. Those are the wow. words you use, Becky. Those Becky. are the words you use. <gasps> not cool. <laughs> You've canceled, canceled us. yeah. We've gone and got us canceled. Oh. Jan, what are you doing for the next <laughs> few years? <Hi>. Finally. <laughs> so, have you seen the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> oh yeah. So, aside from being in the stage show, this movie was ubiquitous and essential and everywhere. It was everywhere. All of my relatives loved this movie and all had it on VHS. We would watch it, you know, around holiday times or just any old time. And it was also a movie that even back then adults would enjoy watching. And like all my relatives would talk about like how much they loved seeing this movie as a kid and, you know, seeing it in the theater originally as a kid. So it was also one of those rare movies that, although it was for children, it completely, like, united me and my relatives who were my age with all of the adults in our lives who were older. Does anyone want to guess what my thoughts on The Wizard of Oz are? Uh, It's too different from the book, so you didn't like it as much growing up. Yeah, I think you would say it's failed on its merits as an adaptation and therefore (laughs) is undeserving of its role as a cinematic classic. You felt it wasn't realistic enough. (laughs) Yeah, the the cinematic verisimilitude. (laughs) This is hashtag not my wizard. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And I kind of have to go into my thoughts on how we feel about the movie now, just to like kind of explain about it. So The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the first Oz book, is probably my least favorite Oz book. It's the only one that was illustrated by someone different. So the drawings look really different. So after the first sequel on, they were illustrated by John O'Neill for like 30-something more books. So that look defines Oz to me. This book just like never looked quite right. And like the later books just got much more imaginative and playful. The books have a lot of wordplay and puns in them. There's a lot of moments where like Al Frank Baum talks directly to the readers. It's very meta for something that was, you know, published like in the turn of the century. And the world of Oz just became much more defined and specific. So like this first book kind of defies what I think of as Oz, like, a lot of stuff is contradicted that, like, later would not have been possible in the series. So, like, when I watch The Wizard of Oz or hear it referenced, like, I have to set aside my feelings about Oz. (laughs) 
because when almost anyone else in the world like hears the word the wizard of oz they think of this movie but to me like it's not what i think of so it's just very strange that this movie is so famous and yet it's not like the oz i know i was like thinking about like how to like relate this to you guys and i was like if everyone like loved the simpsons movie but was like unaware that there was like a simpsons show or something like that Mm -hmm. (laughs) or the x-files so i have always appreciated this film for like the technical visuals it's like very iconic of course like a lot of great performances it's a great piece of entertainment and i i sort of love that it brought oz into the public consciousness but it's just like weird for me because it's just like so different from like my experience of what the story is there was another episode topic where you had the same situation where you'd like read all the books before you ever watched it and so it existed already in your imagination it's like I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, my girl. I talked about that with my girl. Yes. Yeah. This is the, it's a parallel situation to your reaction with my girl. It's true. I never would have connected those things. <laughs> but it's true. There actually are, now that I think about it, a lot of things that I read. I read Batman Returns as a novelization before I saw the movie because I wasn't allowed to. Ditto Jurassic Park, which was much more violent and I should not have been reading that book <laughs> before my parents let me see that movie. My girl, I read as a novelization because. There's a theme here of my parents not letting me see movies because uh, that one was too sad. <laughs> and and a theme of you like going deeper in response to <laughs> that. Like too bad. You don't want me to see this? I will read everything about it. One day you're gonna be taking care of your parents when they're old, and you're gonna be like, you can't see that movie. <laughs> Scary. I'll be revenge. I won't even buy you a toy of it. <laughs> Like, the opposite of that is that I loved Oz so much that I started reading the book Wicked, like, as a teenager, and got to a certain point, and I was like, they're talking about, like, tits in this book, like, (laughs) I saw Wicked on Broadway with you. Yeah, it was much cleaned up from the book. The book is dirty. The book is, Mm. did you finish the book? I couldn't get through it. I don't think I did. It was very adult. There's no tits on Broadway? No tits on Broadway? <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag no tits on Broadway. But Chris, I, I do think it's interesting, this this trend of you, because, again, I, I can totally understand it. You can't help but carry your imagination of something into watching a movie of that thing. And a lot of times, maybe nine times out of ten, your imagination will be the thing that's more vivid and more creative. So what did you think of it now? Like, as an adult watching it, were you able to distance yourself? No. (laughs) I mean, so, I mean, I think this movie is, like, glorious. Of course, it's one of the best movies ever made in a lot of ways of just, like, it being so iconic and and beautiful. It was actually really hard to watch it for the podcast because I either don't have any notes or I have a lot of notes, but it's like, it's very hard to like notes related to the book or notes related just, just just in general is like, it's like giving notes to the Bible. It's like, once you start like picking apart one thing, it's like, well, this doesn't make sense. And that doesn't make sense. It's like, you, you can't really do that. Like with this movie, it's like for one, it's a dream and the books, it's not really a dream, but in this, it's meant to be a dream. So you also can't really create criticize like things like for example i like look at the munchkin land and i'm like is this a functional society like how does this how does this place <laughs> they work? only work like two hours yeah like, and what just... are they doing what kind of work just painting the horses with jello like it's very theatrical like this whole movie is and i didn't realize that before because in some ways i think i normally would have said this is a cinematic movie because of all the color and you know how like visual it is like there's so many like arresting images that you 
like take with you forever like a witch in a pink bubble and then like the wicked witch became like the archetype of a witch you know that we all think of as a witch and you know all the characters like they're just so iconic but i didn't i never thought before of like just how much it also feels like a stage show and it like it obviously like this is very much like on a sound stage like none of these locations really feel like real places you know they all feel like we are arriving at this scene of the movie and here is the set for it you know it's like clearly a matte painting yeah and so and even the you know it's a musical and all the songs also just feel you know kind of like like they don't feel like modern like musical songs they are very specific like they're not universal songs you know they're not like disney songs like part of your world that you could be singing like somewhere over the rainbow is but then after that it's like everything is very specific to the story like this movie is so good but it's just really hard to say anything about it like if you pull apart one thing it just like the whole thing unravels get that. I had a wonderful time watching this movie. I think I started with a note and I was like, why am I writing notes? <laughs> like, I'm just going to watch this, you know? And and I think I agree with you that once you start pulling apart, like it kind of takes the joy out of it because it's just such a delightful watch. It's so of its time and yet it's still so entertaining. And for me, any little thing that I could say, which I'm sure I'll say in this podcast, like tiny little things are really not that big of a deal. It's more about the feeling you get watching it. And I felt right at home, you know, and I felt delighted and I and I loved watching it. It didn't feel like a chore whatsoever, even though it is so iconic and so in the public consciousness. And I've seen it a million times when I was little, like it didn't feel like, oh, I, I'm gonna go back on my laptop while I watch this. Like I wanted to watch it. If there's anything new, I I gathered from this watch was that I feel like the costumes and makeup are incredible. And toxic. <laughs> toxic. <laughs> That's what makes them incredible. Yeah, I, I was I even my husband who really doesn't give a shit, like he came in on a, on a scene and was like, he was like, holy shit, like the scarecrow's makeup. My God. And I was like, yeah. 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 <laughs> like, yeah, every, everyone um, is even like the witch, which is so clearly like green paint, it's still so well done. And I can't believe there was a time before this movie where these characters didn't exist and they weren't just in our brain. I was just kind of blown away by it. I thought it was it was fantastic. The matte paintings didn't bother me. Like I really did love how much artistry was in it. Even if something looked fake, it still looked beautiful. Becky, like you, I was just blown away just watching it and taking it in as a kind of self-contained cinematic experience. I don't think I'd watched The Wizard of Oz all the way through since college. Since being at a college party. Oh, watching it with, like, Pink Floyd? I think I was at that party. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was at that party, too. (laughs) Actually, I think you were at that party. How well does Pink Floyd match up to Annie, though? That's what I want to know. That's the doll's head popping off. (laughs) (laughs) In which song? Does that go with the song Money? (laughs) Or does that correlate? (laughs) 
I don't think I had watched Wizard of Oz the whole way through since a college party where someone synchronized Wizard of Oz with Dark Side of the Moon. That's a class that everyone has to take in college, right? <laughs> uh, well, I took a class on the Beatles, so I wouldn't be surprised if there was a Wizard of Oz class. Yes, please. And, and if you haven't yet watched Wizard of Oz synced up with Dark Side of the Moon, it's very enjoyable, especially if you're not sober. But I, I was just absolutely blown away by this movie. Chris, I can completely see what you mean as far as the incredibly insular nature and the self-containedness of this world and this version of the story means that if you like start to pull it apart, the whole thing comes apart. But I also think that's true of nearly all fairy tales, and that the nature of fairy tales is one that follows dream logic if there's any logic to it at all. <laughs> and so especially for its time, but even just outside of time, I feel like Wizard of Oz is a fantastic fairy tale, especially in this movie version, which I'm not able to compare it to the book, but kind of as its own thing. I, I do think it stands alone and, and not in a way that's like a detriment to it, just in a way that it's very much its own self-contained little world. And to me, really the biggest note that I made was about the exact same production design details, Chris, that you were talking about. I just love the production design on every level from the matte paintings that are just undeniably gorgeous. It was especially fun this time watching a restored version of this movie that really does give proper treatment to those matte paintings. They're astonishing. They're all literally works of art. There are just levels and layers of works of art happening in every frame of this movie. Those production design details like they made whole fields of like shiny plastic popcorn that just goes in the land of oz all of the crops and plants in oz are like shiny in a way that really calls attention to their own fakeness and to me now i recognize that as a thing that just draws me into the fantasy aspect of oz and how different it is from normal everyday life in, in this world like dorothy doesn't have to tend to these fields of crops it's not like on her in the way that all of this responsibility is put on her in her real life in Kansas. And I mean, the, the set in Kansas are also very unreal looking, but I think the black and white cinematography really does help to differentiate it from the color palette and the world and the kind of kaleidoscopic vision that comes with her going to Oz. I was so blown away by how every part of every single frame is just completely handcrafted. Like, just the level of artistry and craft behind this movie is insane. And also with that, it's amazing to me that it still feels so energetic now and that it doesn't feel like kind of a heavy mess. I think a lot of other movies that are that are this epic and, and intricately constructed, especially now, can really feel like kind of heavy and plotting and mechanistic. But this movie just feels very much alive and feels like it's still got that energy and verve to it. And that's as much, I think, about the insanely amazing performances that stood out to me this time as it is about just all of the artistry and the sets and design. Yeah, I think it seems like people are having fun, despite the fact that it sounds like they were not probably having very <laughs> much fun. What yeah. about you, Jan? I mean, I think that I hadn't watched the full movie other than like glancing at it at a college party. I don't think I'd watched the movie since I was like a little kid. So in my head, I turned it on and I was like, and I, I even texted Becky. I was like, this movie's really long, right? <laughs> like, I remember it being really long. And it's not that long. It's less than two hours. And then I was talking to my husband. And I was like, did you like this movie as a kid growing up? And he was like, no, because it's really long and it's boring. <laughs> and I was like, but it's not long. And I guess as a kid, like it was. 
I don't know. Everything it was, was longer everything, and bigger back then. Because so, you watched two hours of Annie every time before. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought that was part of the movie. Um, <laughs> That's just the preamble to yeah, Wizard of Oz, yeah. obviously. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, watching it this time, I was like, oh, this is like an, an amazing movie that I haven't seen in so long. And I and like actually watching it and paying attention to it more than I probably did when I was a kid and just kind of watching it in the background. And I'm not even sure when I was a kid that I fully understood that most of the characters that were in, you know, Dorothy Gale's original world were echoed and the same actor in Oz. So I'm not even sure I like got that as a kid. I didn't as a kid. Wait, Re- what? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. I did not see that coming. I'm like, but you were there, and you were there, and you, but... Um, She's like, what is she talking yeah, about? None, she of, them talking? Were None of them were there. Although there's no there's no Aunt Em, and there's no... Um, yeah. Which I, I thought it feels was, like Glinda should have been Aunt Glinda Em, right? Glinda should have been somebody. No. I didn't mean to be so authoritative about <laughs> Why that. Why couldn't Aunt Em be Glinda? Because she needs to want to go home, and if Aunt Em was in Oz, then oh, she wouldn't so. need to go home so badly. Violating his precious texts. <laughs> I found I was more concerned with, with Toto, perhaps, because I was like, well, she wants to euthanize the dog. And then at the end, everything, and yeah. then at the end, I was like, wait, so like, but tell me what's going to happen to Toto. Okay, can we talk about the one thing that I have a problem with this oh, movie? No. Is she runs away, not to just run away, but because they're going to kill her dog. Yeah. And then she runs away. She's like, okay, I changed my mind. I'm going to go home. And then the twister happens. She goes to Oz. She comes back. They're still going to kill her dog. Yeah, she's like, oh, there's no place like home where they're going to euthanize my puppy that I love so much. <laughs> that was in the first draft of the script. <laughs> Again, that's in the original book, but they had to cut it out. I want to see you and your wife right away about Dorothy. Dorothy? Well, what has Dorothy done? What's she done? I'm all but lame from the bite on my leg. Me, she bit you? No, her dog. Oh, she bit her dog, eh? No. I feel yeah. like they needed to address I needed the fact to, that I needed that address. Yeah, there was still an open thread yes. of what's happening to Toto now. Nope, it's still up in the <laughs> air. They should have addressed that Miss Gulch was actually in that twister and died. Yes, like, yeah, she's oh, really? gone now or something. Should, no, I don't know, but oh. that's what should have happened, is they should have killed Miss Gulch. So yeah, Toto's fate is, like, the one thing, <laughs> if I had to pick, like, a real big nitpicky thing, is I just wish that got solved in some way. Well... He's fine in the books. <laughs> oh, few. Is he is he actually a Karen Terrier like or is he a dog like the dog in the sequel? Does it say what kind of what breed of dog he is? He is drawn like the Toto in the Wizard of Oz okay. movie. So more like Yeah, they did I don't know why they switched like the breed of dog. But he felt we'll very get miscast. There. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I enjoyed watching oh the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I thought that I mean I thought Toto was actually a really good. I loved Toto. Actor. <laughs> I thought Toto was an incredible performer. It's like him and the and the dog from the thing are like Seriously. the top <laughs> dog actor. It's true. They say acting is reacting, and Toto is just present in every scene. Toto is playing off of the Tin Man, playing off of the Scarecrow, like just at every moment. I thought Toto did a fantastic job in a way that did elevate the movie. This is one of the most iconic movies ever made, <laughs> with some of the most 
beloved performances of all time, and all we have talked about is Toto's performance. <laughs> have you been to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and seen Toto's oh, yeah, gravestone? Toto. I can't tell you how hard I would dress up as Do- Dorothy for Halloween, and I would try to get my dog to be in a friggin' basket so I could carry it around and be Dorothy. Get in the basket! She, she didn't want to get in the basket! Why did we even get a Toto dog if I couldn't dress up as Dorothy and put her in a basket? Makes no sense to me. You should have had auditions when you, for your dog. <laughs> the other problem was that she started off like black like Toto, and then as she got older, she became blonde. Yeah, we we could also possibly mention the other actors and performances that are in this movie. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Judy Garland. No, I I know we're not in Kansas. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Who me? I'm not a witch at all. I'm Dorothy Gale from Kansas. Oh, well, is that the witch? Oh, Toto? Toto's my dog. <laughs> well, I'm a little muddled. The munchkins call me because a new witch has just dropped a house on the Wicked Witch of the East. And there's the house, and here you are, and that's all that's left of the Wicked Witch of the East. <gasps> and so, what the munchkins want to know is, are you a good witch or a bad witch? But I've already told you, I'm not a witch at all. Witches are old and ugly. What was that? The munchkins. They're laughing because I am a witch. I'm Glinda, the witch of the north. You are? Oh, I beg your pardon, but I've never heard of a beautiful witch before. Clearly, she's an icon. She's Judy Garland. I mean, come on. But I was struck by how good she was and that this is, it's a silly movie. It's a fairy tale. And yet her performance really felt grounded. Like when she is scared about losing Toto or scared about the hourglass almost up, I genuinely thought she did a great performance and I bought it. Yeah, her performance is fantastic. And the whole movie would really fall apart if her performance wasn't grounded. Oh, God, it's Chris. Oh, no. Chris is still wishing it was Shirley Temple. No, no, On the good ship. No, I mean, this is another, (laughs) the same thing, which is, like, this is, like, it's the movie. Like, you can't replace her with anyone else and, like, have the same movie. But. However. (laughs) Like, it's, like, who is, she's, it's, like, what age is she? It's, It's this very, like, weird, like, netherland of, like, is she a teenager? Is she a little girl? Like, she's a teenager playing a little girl. She is out of time. She, <laughs> she felt is... like she's 16 in the movie in real life. I felt like she was a 12, 13-year-old. Okay. <laughs> she, she's just, she's very earnest. The whole movie's earnest, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> What's your problem? Just spit it out. <laughs> he didn't like the movie. He didn't care for it. It wasn't the same as the book. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying. <laughs> a little bit, though. <laughs> so, the Dorothy character... From the books. I'll try and stop mentioning the books after this note. She's very, like, practical and, like, it's like her Americanness contrasted with the, like, strangeness of Oz that, like, gets her out of situations. So she's, like, very, like, matter-of-fact and, like, practical. Like, she's just, like, a practical farm girl. And so it's just, like, a very different kind of character because it's just hard to describe the tone of the books, but they're very, like, wry and, like, the humor is hard to describe. It's funny. 
The books are funny. The books are funny. The yes. movie, I think, is not funny, but it has a light touch. Yes. Like I actually like tried was trying to think of like how to describe the tone of the books, and they reminded me the most of like silent comedies, like Buster Keaton movies, where there's a lot of like wit in just like action. I mean, obviously the books are more they're written, they're not like you're not seeing them. And there's like a sense that Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton could die, but it's all very like light and comedic. You don't take it seriously. And that's kind of how Oz is. So it's just like, yeah, it's just a really different tone. And her character is just like the book is so like folksy kind of and very American. It's like considered like the American fairy tale because most of the fairy tales we know are descended from like monarchy and like were like written in Europe and are like centuries old. And this is the one that like has a very American like sense. And that's like really embodied through Dor- Dorothy. So it's just like a very different tone. And so it's just like she's the one character that like strikes me as like super like it's hard to like reconcile. Whereas like the scarecrow is the scarecrow. It's like more or less the same. I will get off my book soapbox now, but I just have to say it's different. It's different. Did you think Judy Garland gave a good performance? Yes. It's just a weird... It's it's hard for me to, like, watch this movie because I'm so used... I want things to be real. You know, like, I when I watch movies, I want to feel that, like, what I'm seeing is real, you know, and believe it. Even if it's obviously, like, something fantastic is, like... And this movie is more, like, things representing things. Like, she's representing a little girl. Oz is representing the sort of fairyland. But it doesn't feel like... You don't believe that she's, like, there in, like, a real place. And I'm sorry, but, like, one of my other notes was, I don't believe that she's a farm girl or ever has been. I believe that she is 16-year-old Judy Garland. Exactly, Relatively convincingly playing 14-year-old Judy Garland. Like, this is where I am closest to your point of view, Chris, is that, for me, I think Dorothy is one of the weakest characters in this, even though she is indispensable to the fantasy of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and I do think, like, as much as her performance is iconic, I totally get what you're saying, Chris, as far as, like, how temperamentally different that character is in the books. And it, at least from what you're describing, it makes a lot more sense, like, that having that context for Dorothy. Whereas in this, she's, like, a 14-year-old, like, brassy dame. Like, I genuinely, like, would believe that, like, this character of Dorothy stepped off on a plane from New York City yesterday. What? And got sent to Kansas in some, like, rehabilitative program to Boy, wean her I, off Is it because the... she fell in with the chickens and or the pigs and she's like, oh my goodness. Yeah, she was on the pet pills. And they needed to get awfully, her off. She was awfully like for a farm girl, like oh, protesting, my. like oh my god, pigs. Sorry. Yeah, like I don't want to like pick on like Judy fucking Garland. She's been through enough, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> because I do think like it's great in this way that it's iconic, but like it's hard for me to not like want to be like my brain is seeing a sixteen-year-old teenager who doesn't act like a teenager. She's acting like a young girl, and if she was a sixteen-year-old girl, like she would be acting differently in this. Like you know, but sixteen-year-old. So in 1939 there's there wasn't even teenagers then <laughs> you didn't just go from like 12 to 24 well, the term no, she's right she's right the, the idea of a teenager did not exist at that time but becky to your point she would have been treated and seen as a little girl that performance is many things and it is so iconic but judy garland's character of dorothy does not convincingly act like a little girl she knows how she thinks things should be in the world she's already completely certain of like her 
place in the world and very forthrightly tells people her perspective and her vision. And it's not the vision of a little child who's never been anywhere before. Yeah, I get it. She's not so much scared. She's very confident. I don't see Brassy Dame, but I see a confident young lady who's sure of herself. Yeah, well, and I I think to me what it goes to is that this is iconic for being Judy Garland. It's not iconic for Dorothy. The icon is not the figure, the character of Dorothy. Hashtag not my Dorothy. Oh my goodness. Well, not really anyone's Dorothy. Ultimately, to me, what I got out of it watching it this time was like how much I loved the other supporting characters and how how far the other characters in this movie go toward making it feel more real. I want to talk about like Bert Lahr and Frank Morgan. Let's just uh who's who's your favorite of the three? Fuck Mary Kill. (laughs) The Scarecrow. Jan, you go first. Fuck Mary Kill, Scarecrow Tin Man, Cowardly Lion. We'll talk about the performances later, but we need to get this important <laughs> fact out like, first. Seriously? Yes. <laughs> um, I would marry the scarecrow because brains means they can make money, right? Um, <laughs> That's why. <laughs> not, not sparkling conversation, but... Sure. Right. Chance gold digging from the scarecrow. <laughs> Kill the tin man because I can't invest in all that oil. It seems just like a lot. Like practical. Very yeah. We have practical to get off of fossil fuels. That's right. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so you're gonna fuck the cowardly lion. Uh, I mean, yes. I have a thing for uh, lions. I don't know. It's. I, I like how cowardly he is, and I, uh, it's a big turn. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I would. <laughs> marry the Tin Man because he's got a heart. He's gonna treat me right. I'm gonna kill the cowardly lion. <gasps> Because, you know what, the one song I don't like in these all these wonderful songs is I don't like um, If I Were King of the Forest. How dare you? Becky. <laughs> no! We just did a high five, because I no. agree. But anyway. So that's the one song where it feels out of place. It's like, why does he get an extra song and not I anyone that else? I, that was cut out of my version, because I don't Dorothy doesn't it. get two songs, and he gets, a, I guess this is a song and a half. This but, is um, just Becky still being bitter about her <laughs> summer camp <Seriously>. rendition. <laughs> Goddamn cowardly lion. He's he's a little annoying, but I would fuck the scarecrow because look at his dance moves. (laughs) Oh, I'm a failure because I haven't got a brain. Well, what would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could. I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. my head i'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if i only had a brain i'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain with the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another lincoln if you only had a brain seth Oh my god i have to recover from the multiple wounds <laughs> becky just inflicted on my soul I would absolutely marry the Cowardly Lion. <laughs> Why? Did you not hear soulful. what I said at the... Yeah, first of all, the, the piercing crystal blue eyes. And the little bow. The little bow on top of his head. I don't remember. Yeah, the bow. He's a dandelion. That helps. He's going to thrash people from top to bottomus. And I appreciate a verse Lion King. You know? I, I The Cowardly Lion was my MVP, so I'll marry him. Tin Man... It's not Jeopardy. He doesn't even have the right parts. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to kill the Tin Man. Um, Because also, he's like greasy, and I don't want to be responsible for lubing other people up. (laughs) 
And then... <laughs> Is that why you're single? <laughs> we'll address that later in this episode. What's left? The Fucking scarecrow. the scarecrow? Yeah, why not? I'll fuck the scarecrow by default. Why not? He, he's hung up on a post. I'll take him down. I'll put him back up after I'm done. Who cares? I don't like it. It's not a good visual. Okay, Chris. I'm going to kill the cowardly lion because <gasps> I'm kind of with Becky. He's a real, like, scene stealer. We'll get we'll get to that more. I'm going to kill the lion. Wow. Poaching. He's an endangered species. Because <laughs> I want to wear him as a coat. I mean, he looks very comfortable. I will fuck the scarecrow because he's v- he looks very flexible. Mm-hmm. Everyone's fucking the scarecrow mm-hmm. here. <laughs> it's the coolest thing. Getting a lot of action. <laughs> And I'm going to marry the Tin Man, because, I don't know, the Tin Man. I like the Tin Man. He's He's got a heart. He's sweet. Do you go after people who need hearts? Yes. <laughs> for real, though, I... <laughs> for, for real, everyone. Let's get real about it. It was just remarkable watching those three men. And I think when I was little, I didn't know that they were the guys in the beginning. Because the makeup is so good. And just yeah. to, like, say that more, like, there's just... Now knowing how hot that set was, like, <laughs> wow. Like, they are professionals. It was great. And it's so funny that, like, they sing the same song three times, and yet they change it just enough that it's still interesting. They do it in their own way. They sing it in different ways. The the Tin Man sings it a lot more like this, like, more gentle. And I just couldn't get enough of them. I loved all three. Yeah, and Chris, I think you're right that the songs are more... Most of the songs are more directed at advancing the plot, but I think they're incredibly effective at doing that while also just being so fucking tuneful and catchy. And Becky, I totally agree. And I rewatched it twice just to like fully take in all of the stuff that I hadn't seen in so long. And I think it's one of my favorite musicals that I've seen. Like, I think it does so well at not only having songs that help advance the plot, but that are so catchy and beautifully melodic. And the lyrics are so clever. They're so and, like, clever. Playful, which actually is probably the thing that like feels the most like the books. Like that kind of humor is actually like exactly what you would find in the books. Do you have a favorite lyric? So I used to be a scarecrow guy <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> we I all become still are, a Tin clearly. Man guy. I like especially this time watching it around. I just realized how much I've come. I've either matured or unmature. I don't know what it is. You're but- settling for Tin Man. <laughs> I don't know. I really fell for the Tin Man this time. Mm -hmm. Like, his, like, very gentle, like, his singing is closest to, like, what a pop hit would be, I guess. The other two are playing it bigger and, like, more, like, stagey, and he sounds more like he's singing, like, a pop song, which makes sense, I think, for, like, the Tin Man who who wants a heart. Like, he's singing about love. Well, Uh, you're perfect now. My neck. My my neck. Perfect? Uh, Bang on my chest if you think I'm perfect. Go ahead, bang on it. Beautiful! What a nickel! It's empty. The tinsmith forgot to give me a heart. No heart? No heart. All hollow. When a man's an empty kettle, he should be on his metal, and yet I'm torn apart. Just because I'm presuming that I could be kind of human if I only had a heart. I'd be tender, I'd be gentle, and awful sentimental regarding love and art. I'd be friends with the sparrows and the boy who shoots the arrows if I only had a heart. Picture me a balcony above a voice sings low. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? 
I hear a beat. How sweet just to register emotion, jealousy, devotion, and really feel the part. I mean, I liked a lot of the Scarecrow's lyrics. Um, Confer, conferring with the flowers for some reason. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. That's a good one. But I like the Tin Man, you know, saying he'd be sentimental regarding love and art. And there's like the little part where, like, Wherever art thou, yes, Romeo? which is Snow White's voice. Is it? Yeah, the, oh. the Snow White from. Yeah, I noticed that was like someone else's voice. And I'm like, that voice was not I in think the rest it's of this supposed movie. supposed to maybe be the witch or something, like, because she's like spying on them I at that point. I thought it was maybe Dorothy what? or I something. I thought it was just her, his heart or something. Like, yeah. Well, I think there are many fan theories about this. (laughs) It was actually one of the munchkins hanging himself in the back. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I actually like all of them because they all feel different. Like they all, like it's the same song, but yeah, it does feel like each of them kind of wrote their own lyrics in a way. I also particularly like the Cowardly Lions version, the If I Only Had the Knife. So I, I will say I'd never been a Cowardly Lion fan in this movie. Like his shtick is like a little too broad, which I know I'm speaking about the Wizard of Oz here, which is <laughs> pretty broad stuff in general. But like, I don't like If I Were King of the Forest. I, like it feels like it really? like stops the story yeah, it like, does. in its tracks. Because they're waiting for the wizard to get back to them. And then they it just stops it in its tracks. It might be different if the other people or Dorothy like had other songs but it just feels like we already know this about him yeah but the point is that he's a narcissistic little immature shithead who does try to take everything over and the other characters in the movie are showing him the grace of like disabusing him of that notion no they're not Dorothy does she calls him in a shit she like instantly calls him a, a coward and but that's bef- like that's, that's in the if i only had the nerve and then if i were king of the forest just like is yeah like kind of repeating the same information like i feel like they just wrote like a song that they thought was fun and like kind of stuck yeah. it was in he somewhere. a bigger deal than the other two the the actor who Bert played Lauer? yeah i think, so. I think he so. kind of was because yeah. that might have been like let's write another song for this, for this actor yeah that mer- i think that he kind of was know. And I, I like the broadness of, her, of his performance. It's very vaudeville. It's very, like... Oh, absolutely. But she's Dorothy. The witch is Dorothy. Come. Well, that makes a difference. Just uh, wait here. I'll announce you at once. Did you hear that? He'll announce us at once. I've as good as got my brain. I can barely hear my heart beating. I'll be home in time for supper. In another hour, I'll be king of the forest. Long live the king. If I were king of the forest, not queen, not duke, not prince, my regal robes of the forest would be satin and not a cotton and not chintz. All of the humor is very kind of like stage show-ish from those characters, but him in the most like feels like he's like kind of like saying it to the audience. And I just kind of don't like the way that that almost like breaks the fourth wall a little bit too much like he, he doesn't feel like a character who's like in oz he feels like a character who's like from america like doing some shtick for like the kids in the audience do you have a list of all the characters frank morgan plays in this movie i don't but there's is, a lot is that the wizard and oh. the guy at the gates yep he's mostly in the emerald city like everyone who speaks in the emerald city is pretty much him yeah 
Right, the guy at the gate and then the guy at the door for the wizard, mm-hmm. and then he's the wizard. I felt like that was on purpose. It's the... It's the. It's not because they didn't have budget to pay Right, it's, it's, it's the guy saying, you can't see the wizard because he is the wizard, and he doesn't want anybody to find him out. No. No. he's what? not all the. It's not all the same one person. I don't person. think it's supposed to be the wizard, because no, no one knows... That the wizard is a humbug. Like, the, the people of the Emerald City yes. don't know it. Right. But he's playing the guard for the wizard's door because he's like, no, you can't come but see the wizard. But he's not Oz playing the guard. He's a separate character. I saw it as a separate character because he was so many different characters and he's, like, really in the real world. He's a mind reader. Yeah. Fortune teller. Oh. And so I just sort of thought of, like, all these characters are popping back up. And, like, he's a repeat character, I guess? Oh, I totally bought it as the guy putting on a fake wig being like, you can't see the wizard. I mean, that makes sense to me, too. I just didn't think about it like that. Munchkins. Do they hold up? (laughs) (laughs) How do we we, we represent the I want to know what the Lullaby League and the Lollipop Guild do when Dorothy does not visit. Like, what is their function? (laughs) What is their function? No, what I got from it was that the social order of the Munchkins is based on tribes and gangland turf wars. (laughs) (laughs) And they're probably incredibly bloody because it's such a beautiful place that that builds up a lot of tension. West Side Munchkin Story. Well, and also, I was like, it seems like all of the groups of Munchkins to whom we're we're actually introduced in this movie are not the munchkins that are out tending the crops and like tilling the land and doing all the manual labor. And I'm like, what is the underclass of the munchkins that they're not showing us at all in this movie? And will they rise up? I think it's magic. Could be. It could well be. Also, has the lollipop guild people ever freaked you out? I feel like I was always freaked out by them. They look weird. As a member of the Lollipop <laughs> Guild, I resemble that remark. Do you represent the Lollipop Guild? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> and in the name of the Lollipop Guild. Seriously, though, no one else thought they were gross looking. <laughs> the little boys with weird makeup on. I mean, they're, they're straight. Yeah. Uh, it, it freaked me out. <laughs> there is something a bit uncanny about their costumes yeah. and something a bit garish about the makeup. And I think that's on purpose. I think it's not necessarily something at the time that would have been seen as creepy, much like older clowns were not necessarily seen as creepy at the time, but look super lugubrious and weird now. The Munchkin sequence in particular, I think, made a like splash when this came out and afterward like it was nothing like that had ever been seen like just the scale of that production and the costumes like obviously the whole movie is iconic now but i think that like i think it was wondrous at the time i don't think it was creepy i was creeped out right now (laughs) in our time it's creepy the the bald-headed munchkin (laughs) creepy costumes holding giant lollipops here's here's another creepy lyric uh can you even dye my eyes to match my gown what jolly good town can you (laughs) dye my eyes 
Yes. You don't ask that? You don't don't say that to your hairdresser every time? Can you dye my eyes to match my gown? Yeah, you want to change the color a little bit. I mean, her hair looks great when they, like, blow it out and it's all curly. Seriously, you just go down to Koreatown and, like, 25 bucks and they'll color your eyes. That's my favorite song in this movie, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, for some reason, I just really enjoy the Mariel It's so jolly. Everyone's, like, laughing. I still like Summer Over the Rainbow the best. That song is just the best. I sing it to my daughter sometimes when she lets me. It was almost cut from the movie because they thought the Kansas sequence was too slow. It is imagine? a little bit slow. No, I cannot imagine. It is it is necessary. Like it won an Oscar that year, so obviously it was like popular then, as well as like now become like one of the most iconic songs ever. But just like it's just funny to hear of like that like some studio executive was like, yeah, let's cut that. Studio executives are always wrong. That's true. Or oh, the only other note I had was my favorite Toto moment when they are sneaking into the witch's castle and the the scarecrow, Tin Man, and the Lion beat up some of these guards. Toto either helps beat them up or just like steals a costume item because they all steal the costumes of the guards <laughs> to get in. And Toto steals a red sash. Oh, really? <laughs> so that he can sneak in. <laughs> I never noticed that before in all the time. I've seen this movie, but I was like, Toto's totally going to sneak in, too. Good for him. He's like, Gary, you look different. I didn't realize you were a dog. (laughs) (laughs) But you have the sash, so it must be you. Come on in. Must be you. Yeah. Same person. Same Gary I always knew and loved. (laughs) One thing that did stand out this time was actually not in an Oz section, but during the tornado in the beginning, like when they're running away from it, I thought the production design was amazing. It looks great. There's this tornado in the background and i was like i don't actually know how they did that did they project it i was just kind of in awe from a 2021 perspective being like how did they do that effect yeah technically it looks really great and their sound design for it is actually really great too it is i believe that they're being tossed by the wind and and scared another part of it that really stood out to me is how like the moments after dorothy gets knocked out by the broken window there's this sequence of like almost like a proto-psychedelic kind of dream sequence where she's starting to see all the people in her real life like fly past and kind of transmogrify into their counterpart characters in Oz. Some guys in a rowboat. Yeah, the guys in a rowboat. The evil bitch of a woman who's trying to (laughs) euthanize her dog is flying by on a bicycle. That evil bitch has a name and it is Miss Gulch. Miss Gulch, (laughs) that's right. I'm sorry. Pardon me for erasing her name. But yeah, that sequence was really good. And and again, it's like, it's clearly like rear projection and, you know, other practical filmmaking effects of the time. But I thought it was really effective. I'm just impressed by the amount of work that went into this movie. It's just a beautiful piece of art. Even if story-wise, we're like complaining about this or that. Like overall, it's just, it's a gorgeous piece of art. It's so impressive for 1939, like the costumes and the, the flying monkeys, like how they did that? I mean, I don't know. The Surrender Dorothy sequence, like all that. The Flying Monkeys fucked me up as a child. Yeah, well, me too. Think- and they're so scary, but also they're wearing carefully quaffed <laughs> rockabilly haircuts <laughs> and little bellhop hats. Yeah, that makes, like, them, it only makes them scarier, really. <laughs> it, yeah. Literally, it only makes them scarier. Yeah, it's so funny. And they're like the clearly like non-natural, non human aspects of them are very jarring and scary. Yeah. I mean, are they also little people? Yeah, they're people. Okay, I guess I, like, didn't understand that as a kid, because they're just, like, it's just so strange. Oh, yeah, and they, you know? they move in a super animalistic way. It's it's super well done. One thing I don't think I ever noticed before was that when they're going to the witch's castle, the lion has a pump of witch remover. <laughs> 
What? Yeah, he has like a pump, like something that you would like exterminate pests with. Like a fumigating oh. device? Yes. Okay. And like, this was the first time I'd watched this on like a bigger TV. I watched it on like a regular Blu-ray, but it was on a 4K TV. So it was pretty big and pretty like crisp. And so this was the first time. And the Scarecrow has a gun, which I had remembered reading about before, but it was just like, it's very jarring to see. Totally Where did they that? get those props? From maybe the wizard. This is like right after they leave the Emerald okay. City and then go to like hunt down the witch. So. <laughs> they strap up in Oz? I didn't know that. <laughs> they just stopped at the general store. I, I wish they showed that scene. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere on the cutting room floor. We're gonna need guns. Lots of guns. <laughs> <laughs> this was a real, truly live place. And I remember that some of it wasn't very nice, but most of it was beautiful. But just the same, all I kept saying to everybody was, I want to go home. And they sent me home. <laughs> Doesn't anybody believe me? Of course we believe you, though. Oh, but anyway, Toto, we're home. Home. And this is my room. And you're all here. And I'm not going to leave here ever, ever again. Because I love you all. And, oh, Annie M., there's no place like home. To wrap up, what do you guys think of the moral of the story, which is there's no place like home? I disagree. <laughs> is that the moral? Yes. That, that you should never leave home? Not that you shouldn't necessarily never leave it, but that no matter where you go, I guess you won't find anything like it. Hmm. But your home can change you know, as you grow, I feel like, I mean, I just went home for Thanksgiving and I hadn't been there in years and years. And it did feel like there's no place like home. Like, you know, it was very sentimental and brought up a lot of feelings for me to be back at like my childhood home, my parents. But home is not where your dog is being euthanized by bitchy <laughs> next door neighbor is what I would say to counter that. <laughs> is it is it more like not a moral like you should be like this, but more like the truth of the matter is people are nostalgic for their home and will always have a special place in their heart for where they grew up? No, I think it's more prescriptive than that. Mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. Both times I rewatched it, it very much, like the way that it, ham especially the way it hammers at home at the end, you know, because that's when Dorothy has learned her lesson, is it's very much about like, you should not set your sights too far past the horizon that you're provided with. Yeah, I feel like the m movie version does kind of make that... Because, like, that is a part of the book. Like, in the movie, it feels like it's almost like a lesson that they're trying to impart that maybe they don't actually necessarily believe, but they want to, like, sell it to the yeah. kids in the audience or something. Like, don't get crazy, kids. Like, just stay home and be good and or, like, eat you your can, vegetables. You can have adventures, but always come home. Mm -hmm. But again, they, this movie does not prosecute the case against going to Oz. <laughs> or if it is trying to, it fails on that merit. Because I, I want to go to that place. <laughs> it's just, it's funny to me, because I find, like, the way that it's presented in this movie, like, a little bit, like, trite and, like, oversimplified. And that this, like, thing that I love so much is, like, one of the things it's most known for is that quote which I kind of don't Is that in the book with. at all, or, or no? Yeah, it is. Yeah, but it's not hit quite the same way. Like, the book is more, like, ironic about how, like, the Tin Man, the Lion, and the Scarecrow, they all already have what 
they've been searching for right, it. Right, right. Like, that's kind of a part of the movie, but it's sort of just a, like, uh, like, you know, like a funny little ending. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of the point of the book, is that it's just, like, all these people searching through this, like, fantastic place for something that they don't actually need. And it, that's what I mean by it. it's kind of, like, well, a very American story. Like, searching externally for something that can only be found on the inside. Yeah. I'm gonna rewrite this movie. So, instead of her, notes. instead of her running away because her dog is gonna get killed maybe she just has had it with mrs gulch like ms gulch so it's still like (laughs) oh she's available an antagonist she's still an antagonist (laughs) in dorothy's world but she wants to have adventures and she wants to see no um dorothy Uh. like she it's not because oh my god they're gonna kill my dog i'm gonna run away it's i want to have adventures i want to see the world i'm bored of farm life and then the twister happens, she gets knocked out, and then by the end, she's like, you know what? I'm good at home. And I so feel it's like, like that- her rumspringa? Yeah. <laughs> she's getting it out of her system. Got it. Well, you did it. You fixed the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. Finally. Thank good you. for you. It took 100 you. episodes. <laughs> she did it. You hear that? AFI, Oscars. <laughs> MGM, all of you. Generations of children and adults who love this story dearly. Becky's fixed it for Don't you. Don't tell me that's not a better story. No, it is. I mean, yeah, that's... <laughs> and that's, yeah, more of what, like... I'm not going to say anything about the book. <laughs> I, I love that you preface everything you say about the book with, ah, I'm not going to talk about the book anymore. <laughs> so that'll conclude our discussion of The Wizard of Oz, but we will continue on to talk about Return to Oz, a very different film, shortly. And we'll see who the house falls on in our next episode of When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcast product. And rate and review us five stars or more so that more people will see the show. You can also contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash young so that we can create and provide more free episodes of this podcast. I have been Seth. I'm Becky. And I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. And I'm Rita Kempley. Come visit me at RitaKempley.com. Wait. (laughs) Jan will return in part two. The Janining. (laughs) We can have a big 12 and start to work at one. We can have a lunch and then the two is done. Jolly good fun! Ha ha ha! Ho ho ho! And a couple of tra la la! That's how we laugh the day away in the very old land of Mars! Ha ha ha! Ho ho ho! That's how we keep you young and fair in the very old land of Oz. Rub, rub, yeah, rub, rub, yeah, with your tin or bras. That's how we keep you in repair in the very old land of Oz. We can make a different smile or of a frown. Can you even dye my eyes to match my gown? Uh-huh, jolly old time. A certain air of savoir faire in the merry old land of Boston.